how we doing today? Good. I'm so glad to be here with you at Crosstown today. What a privilege it is to be able to minister to you today in this place. My name is Ricky. I am the worship pastor here. I've been here for about 14 years, which is crazy um, for me to think about, especially the average pastor tenure is less than five years, and the worship leaders are even less than that. So that's a testament to one, you guys, because a lot of you have been here from the very beginning. You've seen me wear v-necks that were too deep. You've seen me have jeans that were too tight. That hasn't changed. I'm sorry. I got a little bit of time left. But um, it's, it's just a testament to you guys being able to play all these wild things on stage that we've tried to do because we feel like we need to make Jesus look cooler than he actually is. Uh, and you've graciously let us try it. So thank you so much. Uh, that's a testament to you guys. And also more so than that, I think it's a testimony to the culture we have here, one that's been created and fostered and defended by our pastor and team here. Um, and we believe what we say. Those words on that video that we open up every week, we continually want to put that in front of you because that's what we believe. We believe every word of those. We believe Jesus is a big deal. He's the real deal. He loves you very much. And I tell you all that just to say you're in a safe place today. Not perfect, because no church is, but safe. And we're striving to be more and more like him. And part of that is sometimes we will enter into things like trials and tribulations, which Jesus promises us that we will enter into. And that's kind of the plot line we're going to go with today. This idea of testing. So let's watch this video together. The story of the Bible begins with God creating a beautiful world and then sharing it with all of his creatures. And he appoints Adam and Eve to rule it on his behalf. And God gives them access to his wisdom and life, but then tells them that there's one tree they can't eat from because it will lead to death. So they have a choice about how to rule with God. Mm. This kind of feels like a test. Well, that's because it is a test. But isn't that kind of cruel for God to test them? Well, not all tests are bad. Let's say there's a king who chooses you to fulfill a royal task because he wants to know if you are trustworthy. Well, I guess that's a test, but really it's an opportunity to do something important and noble. Right. But then let's say there's a rebel who hates the king and you. And he tries to convince you that you would be better off not doing what the king asks. Well, the rebel is setting a trap. Right. So a test could be an opportunity or a trap. And the difference is whether the one testing you has your best interests in mind. I see. And both types of tests appear in the beginning of the Bible. God tells them to eat of the tree of life and not the forbidden tree. Yeah, this is God's test of loyalty. God wants to rule the world with humans as his partners, which means they will need to trust his wisdom over their own. But then a rebel comes and tests them to eat of that other tree. Right. The rebel seizes this opportunity and twists it so he can lead the humans into exile and ultimately death. He turns the test into a trap. But after the humans fail, God promises that one day a human will come who will pass the test and defeat the snake. And as the story moves on, God gives a couple named Abraham and Sarah an opportunity to trust him by leaving their family behind, 
to go to a new land where God will use them to restore his blessing to all people. So this is a test. And at first, things go well. But Abraham quickly fails. He lies to protect himself, and then he and Sarah scheme to get a son their own way by abusing one of their servants. Definitely not passing the test. But God doesn't give up on Abraham. He gives him one final opportunity, a test to prove his loyalty. God asks Abraham to go up onto a hill and offer his son as a sacrifice. I can't imagine a more intense test. And Abraham does it. But in the last moment, God stops him and provides a substitute animal in the place of his son. God then says he will fulfill his promise through Abraham's family because he passed this test. So Abraham passed this test, but he hasn't proven to be a fully trustworthy partner. We're still waiting for someone who can pass the ultimate test. Yeah, and as the family of Abraham grows and becomes a nation, God continues to test them. Like when the Israelites wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They have lots of opportunities to trust in God, to provide water or daily bread. But they instead blame God and even say that he trapped them in the desert to kill them. And so the rest of Israel's story in the Hebrew scriptures is pretty much the same. The Israelites don't trust in God and his promise. They're not loyal. And eventually the whole nation fails. So humans have an amazing opportunity to partner with God, but no one is really qualified. And so all of this brings us forward to Jesus. There's a story where Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without food or water. Ah, yes, the wilderness. And there he meets a sinister creature who tries to trap him. But Jesus trusts in God's wisdom. And he passes the test. Then later there's a story about Jesus going to pray with some friends and God commissions him to go up to Jerusalem and to give up his life. And so he goes. And on the night of his arrest, Jesus took his friends and went to a garden. And he told them to pray because tonight, he said, is the great test. And he prayed to God, please let this test pass from me, but not my desire, rather may your desire be done. In this garden, Jesus shows us what passing the test looks like. He trusted in God's wisdom. He loved others more than himself, and he confronted evil with good. Even though it cost him his life. Right. Jesus offered his own life as a sacrifice to cover for all of the failed tests of his people Israel and of all humanity. Jesus passed the ultimate test on behalf of us all. This is amazing. But that doesn't mean everything is going to be great in our lives. I mean, let's be honest, we're going to face our own tests every day. Right. Jesus said every generation of his followers would have their own tests that will force them to trust God in radical new ways. And these tests can be difficult and often painful. But remember, a test from a good God is an opportunity. This is why James, a leader in the early Jesus movement, said that we should be grateful when we face tests and trials because they offer us a gift. It's an opportunity to surrender to God's wisdom and to become more like Jesus, the one who loved us and who passed the test on our behalf. Wow, what a way to look at this concept. If you're like me, testing is not something that I look at in a positive way a lot of times or as any good can come of it, especially because in grade school and other things like that, I think it just informs us and continually teaches us that 
Testing is going to require pain and you're going to, if you fail it, you're going to be a failure in life. And so it has all these negative connotations to it. But that's not really what it is at all. A test is just a way to measure someone's knowledge, skill, or resolve. It's essentially a way to expose the truth about something. Whether it's how much knowledge you have about a certain subject, whether it's if you're right for a certain position, because all of us would agree in here that we want our doctors, we want our dentists, we want people that are tested to be in those places. You don't want me showing up in your operating room if you need something done. I promise you that, because I have yet to be tested in that way. I want Dr. McLean. I want somebody that I know has been through tests to be able to come and operate on me. If I'm flying a plane, you're in trouble. I want that pilot to be tested. And even to drive in a car, we have to do these things constantly all the time. It's part of our lives. So that's no different for scripture, starting in the beginning with the first humans. So in Genesis 2, we read, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the days that the Lord God made heaven and earth, now no shrub of the field was yet on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living person. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord caused every tree to grow that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So we're introduced to this garden concept, the reality in which Adam and Eve were living. It was a place where man could freely commune with God. It was a place where man could live out his true calling, as Stacy covered last week, as co-creators, co-rulers with God on this planet. It was a place where humanity could live in connection with God. Verse 15 says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and tend it. That word cultivate and keep, um, it actually means work and keep. And it's a little interesting concept because, again, like what Stacia showed us, here we have this job that Adam and Eve have. And the only other time those two words are used in connection together are in reference to the Levitical priesthood. Those are the priests who would go in, into the temple on behalf of the people. So here we have Eden being the temple, the tree of life being the holy of holies, Adam and Eve being this priesthood where humans could go and meet with God and eat of his divine life at the tree of life. So already at the beginning, we see our intended purpose as humans. In verse 16, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for on the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now, there are two things, because when I read this, it blew my mind, because I, I tend to, we can tend to put our own stories in Scripture sometimes, and, and we'll miss what it actually is saying. The first thing doesn't place the tree off limits at all. It doesn't say, if you obey, then you get the tree of life, which is, me, which is what I sometimes read it as. See, the gift is given before they've done anything. The first command of God, the very first one for them, is to enjoy that gift. See, that kind of reframes the whole thing for me. It's not eating of the tree of bad, or good and bad, saying, you may eat from any tree of the garden, including the tree of life, if you don't eat of the tree of knowing good and bad. And I think for often, sometimes that's how we read it. I have to somehow prove myself worthy of this. And although there is part of that in the testing 
element, the gift is given far before that. The second thing is the last verse doesn't say, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For on that day you will eat from it, I will kill you. Rather, it says you will certainly die. And that's a big distinction to make because what happens next in the story, and some of you may, may not know, but they do end up eating the fruit. Okay, this is a little spoiler. Then the very next thing they do is they mistrust each other. They hide their bodies. Then they play the blame game. Then in the next story, their two sons divide, resulting in the first death as Cain kills Abel. So it's not God and his vengeance zapping them because they didn't obey. We did it to ourselves. Now God does play a role by exiling them from the garden, preventing them from eating of the tree of life, which means they'll die. But that's, not a secondary, but that's a secondary response to the humans taking the knowledge of good and evil into their own hands, which leads to them killing each other in the very next chapter. So we see here Adam and Eve have a choice. And I want you to place yourself in their sandals or bare feet at this moment, okay? You have this tree in the middle of the garden, we're told. But the other one, the tree of knowing good and bad, it's right near it. And you have to walk by that thing every day on the way to commune with God, on the way to meet with him, to, have, to eat of his divine life, to enjoy the gift he's given. You have to pass by that tree every single day. But God says that one's going to kill me if I eat that one. It looks real tasty, unbelievable. I'm, I'm hungry, so I mean, I think it looks good. But if I eat that, I can't have that. I can't enjoy that free gift. I'll forfeit it. Okay. I can see there's life over there. God pointing me towards it, inviting me freely into it, saying, please enjoy this. It's yours. But right near it is this other tree. And isn't it funny that those, those branches, I don't know about you, but for me, they often hang a little lower. They look a little better. I have to often peer through them to see the tree of life. I mean, isn't that what pornography does to us? We know sex is a good thing. No amens, okay. We know sex is a good thing, but it has to be done on God's terms for it to bring about life. Now, can we know in a literal sense bring about life if you do that? Also, spoiler, that will happen. can happen as a result. But think about what it does, really. It takes something God's created as good, a beautiful gift between a man and a woman in a covenant relationship with him, and it twists it instead of bringing you close together what you're designed to do, it divides. Instead of promising fulfillment and satisfaction that you've yet to experience and something new and exciting, we, often, we know what it delivers. Shame, self-hatred, division, and ultimately death. But let's continue though. Genesis 3.1 says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God really said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now I want you to notice here, you see how he inverted that gift? It, scripture doesn't say that. It, it says, enjoy the gift first. You can't eat of any tree of the garden. Just not that one over there. But he, he knows what, that's why he said he's more cunning. He knows what's going on. He knows, he knows exactly what's going on. But Eve, she realizes it too, because she's quick. 
He's quicker than Adam, all right? Adam is, we don't know what he's doing. He's, he's over there lining up his, all right, I got that. Oh, yeah, shoulder back. I mean, he's doing, he's riding a tiger. He's doing something somewhere else, but we know he's not in this conversation. But she picks on what's up, what's, he's stepping in here. From the fruit of the tree of the garden, we may eat, she said to him, but from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die for God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took and I want that word just to kind of sit in your brain for a minute. She took some of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves waist coverings. See, the tree of knowing good and evil was beautiful. It was attractive. I mean, knowing the difference between good and evil would be a good thing. We can agree, right? See, oftentimes the test we'll see biblical characters face and the choices we'll face in our own lives won't be obviously black and white, good versus evil. It won't be those kind of choices. And that's why that word, you'll hear me go back and forth between good and evil and good and bad. The better translation of that knowing good and evil is bad. That's what the word in Hebrew is is because those choices are going to be more often what we face than any. It's more likely a choice between a good choice, and I think that one's good too, but I don't really know. Like, can I trust myself? Are my motives pure? Are my biases in check? Does God really know what's good for me? Because that looks good. I'm hungry. It's tasty. I want to be wise. Why wouldn't he want that for me? But God said it will kill me, though. I think I might know a little bit better on this, than on this one, so I think I'm going to go ahead and probably just take a bite. And isn't that our experience? As we stand here so wise in our own eyes sometimes, not trusting that he's got our best intentions, what he knows is best for us, is actually what's best for us. So we see the consequence of their covetous desire to take a good thing like wisdom, into their own hands on their own terms instead of trusting in the plan God had for them. And as a result, the very thing the serpent said would happen, happened. Their eyes were opened and they became just like God, knowing good and evil. But also what God said would happen, happened. You will certainly die. See, one of the things we tend to forget is that Adam and Eve being the first humans, being the first co-creators, co-rulers, God is trying to teach them what it's like to be the ideal that he's created, what he wants. And so they're in a state of moral infancy just because of lack of experience. They've, we're not told they've encountered anything that's bad in a moral sense yet. They're like little children in this way. It's not that they won't ever experience bad, but God knows it needs to come on his terms as the best way to them, for them to flourish. But as a result of their covetous desire, their eyes are opened far earlier than God ever intended. And this puts a metaphor to me as like a parent because I understand what this is like. We have two little boys, a six and a four-year-old. And after church today, I'm going to go home and I'm going to show them the John Wick trilogy. And it's going to be sweet. No, I'm not going to do that. 
I'm not going to show them the John Wick trilogy. It's not good for them to see that, maybe probably ever, um, but definitely not right now as six and four-year-olds. We have like way too many channels on the TV anyway, but the sci-fi channel, Alice is into the Spider-Man universe from beginning to end. He's going through all of them. Some of them are on that channel. And they'll have uh, Chucky commercials and they'll have Scream commercials and Halloween commercials. Jason's coming out with a chainsaw. And it's like, shut the thing down. No, trying to protect them, preserve their little innocent brains. Because why? It's not cruel. It's not cruel for me to do that. I'm trying to protect them. I know what's best for them. Brains can't handle it at that age. They're going to have nightmares. They're going to come get in my bed and mess my sleep up. So as a result, they immediately notice their otherness and cover themselves, which you guys know is not something intimacy ever does. Now the two who became one are now the two who are two. They were created male and female. They were different. They were other but their otherness was always something that brought them together and not divided. Now we have division. We know how the rest of the story goes. Because they failed the test, they are taken from the garden, losing their access to the tree of life, preventing them from living forever. And that concept to me always seemed like, it'd be the reason I would, um, I I played football growing up, into lots of sports, but I would never step on to the field or on the court or anything without making sure I had confessed every sin I had done that day. Because I thought, if I don't, that, I'm going to throw a pick six, first play, I'm going to ruin the whole game. That's, how, that's that kind of idea that comes into play here. But because they failed, didn't mean the opportunity to walk with God and rule over creation on his behalf disappeared. Because in his mercy, he says, I'm going to allow you the opportunity to continue this is just not going to be in the garden because I can't let you eat of that tree of life now knowing what you know and live forever. That's not merciful for me. I'm going to allow you to die so that you don't have to any longer experience that. So in his mercy, he doesn't give up on him. He instead continues the story down to his children just outside of his ideal. But now Adam and Eve or Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, one clarification, we don't know why they're making sacrifices, the scripture doesn't say, nor do we know what God's standard for that is. So this is just, we don't know that. We can, like I said, put read into it. We can talk about how and people have debated why that is, but we just don't know. The scripture doesn't say. It continues, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. I think that's just incredible. In the midst of Cain's rage for being told you failed for a reason we don't know, God comes to him like a loving father, full of compassion, and gives him guidance. And again, because I'm a parent, I understand this. We tell our kids all the time, 
Don't play in that creek. Don't touch that oven. Don't you be in that toilet playing around. We tell them that stuff. Don't cross the street without looking both ways. Because why? They're little tiny tests to prove, can you continue to do that kind of activity? Every time we open a door, we don't want to have to worry about them getting hurt because they have not proven themselves trustworthy enough to cross the street without looking both ways. We're like, be careful. And God says to Cain, be careful. Cain hasn't already messed up. He's yet to do that. God comes to him, be careful. It's crouching. It's right there. His desire is to rule over you, but you can rule it. See, our best intentions are in his heart for us. And I want us to remember that. But like Cain and Adam and Eve before him, will we choose to live by God's wisdom or our own? Will we let sin rule us or will we rule over sin? Will we partner with God as thy kingdom come, thy will be done, co-creators, co-rulers, right in this age that we're living in? Or will we go at it on our own, trusting in our own eyes? We know how the story goes. Cain ultimately fails the test. And this pattern in scripture continues for the rest of the biblical story. We saw in the video every single character. We get to Abraham, who passed the test. He passed the test to go outside and trust the Lord that he had something for him to show him. He looks up and he sees all the stars in the sky, all the sand in the seashore. And God says, that's how many descendants you're going to have. And what happens next? He goes back home, tells Sarah. She laughs at him. She said, are you kidding me? We are old, no spring chickens, there ain't no way. We haven't had a kid yet. What, what are the odds we're gonna have one now? I don't care what he told you. And then what happens? Take matters into their own hands. They pass by that tree of impossibility with its branches hanging so low. And in the distance is the tree of life that God has promised. But as a result them trusting in their own decision, their own ideas for what they thought was best. A nation is born that becomes a thorn in the side for the children of Israel for generations to come. But the good news is God doesn't give up on them. He still longs to partner with his people. So he tests them again. Isaac, I need you to sacrifice him. And the test that none of us parents could ever imagine but instead of grabbing the low-hanging fruit of impossibility once again, or God, I don't understand this at all, what you're doing. He trusts him. And God says, because you trusted me, you passed that test. I'm going to bring all that I promised to you into fulfillment. But ultimately, as we saw, Scripture bears witness that from Adam and Eve to Abraham to the nation of Israel, all of that shows we continue to fall short. We do the things we don't want to do. We grab that low-hanging fruit. We allow sin to devour us, to own us. We choose our own way over God's. But the great news is that all the way back in Genesis 3, right in the midst of the fall, humans' first failed test, God promises a descendant to Adam and Eve that will crush the head of the serpent. Set back right all that went wrong. His name is Jesus. And at the age of 30, he begins his ministry. And what's the very first thing that happens to him? In Luke 4, he's baptized before by John. And in Luke 4, we read that the devil leads him into the wilderness to tempt him, to test him. Only the results are different this time. And by the way, if I have this just once, I don't have my phone, but we have an app that has all these resources on there, okay? 
And you can dive into this. They broke it down every test. And because Jesus, what he does when he takes the, this testing is he redeems everything that went wrong with the children of Israel. So the 40 days is not just coincidence. It's because they were for 40 years. The bread alone, what he says to Satan, is a, diff, is a reference to the bread that they were fed every single day. There's, and so there, it's there for you if you want it. But whether it be to take a test to satisfy desire on his own terms of providing hunger for himself, which he was after 40 days, when he, Satan says, turn this bread into stone, or seize control of the power that was rightfully his, or bow his head in worship to something other than the one true God, he passes every test that we proved incapable of doing, even unto his own death. And this is why I say we believe he's a big deal, because he is a huge deal. Without him, you saw that picture. It's just us on the cliff failing test after test after test because we were, were incapable of doing so. But Jesus gets it right. In his obedience, he accomplishes what we could not. He shows us what it's like to be truly human, what God intended for us to be all the way in the beginning. He didn't grab the fruit. He didn't let sin devour him as enticing as it would have been. And think about in his position, the very word made flesh dwelling among us. I mean, I would just been like saying, I ain't got time for this. You know what you are. But he, he takes it. He passes every test. So much so that the author of Hebrews puts it this way. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let's approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace for help at the time of our need. How beautiful, how powerful that we have that. We're not here on our own. He comes to us full of compassion and gives us the guidance we need because he's been through it. But he just knows what it's like to defeat it. See, there will be tests for all of us. Make no mistake about it. John 16, says that. Jesus promises us that. In this world, you have trouble. Take heart for I've overcome it though. Remember, it's a test from a good God who has our best intentions in mind, who is continually there to try and help us become more like Jesus, which is what he wants for us. Sounds cheesy, but that's what he wants for us. He wants us to become more like Jesus. And I have to just kind of clarify one thing because this is the question I had. So everything bad that happens to me, is that a test? Is every little negative circumstance that I occur into, like a car tire getting flat or, or anything, a test? Are the big struggles that I've gone through, the big things? Can I stand up here and say that when Kelly and I had all the miscarriages we had and went through all the pain and struggle with that, that God was testing me because I sing over there. So if I don't have faith, you, you need to get it. So I'm going to test you this way. Now, let me be clear. Like I said, we're going to have it. But the explicit test, the ones, there's a tree right there and there's a tree right there. We're not going to encounter those kind of things, I don't think. You might have a tree of knowledge of good and evil in your backyard or a tree of life. I don't, but you might. You might have a golden calf in your backyard. You might have to, the you know, temptation to murder your brother, but I don't yet. Okay, no. <laughs> Love you, Jonathan. No, I don't. I don't. So those little explicit tests, I'm not going to stand up here and say that that's what we're going to face. 
but in the aftermath of those miscarriages, in the aftermath of the pain some of you guys live with all the time. There's always little elements of testing, isn't there? Always. There's always two trees that seem to rise up. It was so good and tasty to be so bitter and angry because I'm God's favorite. You know, I, I work at a church. I should be having the easiest time having kids of anybody. That wasn't the case at all, was it? How dare you? <laughs> and here we go. Tree of life. Tree that you'll surely die. And all of us will face those, whatever that looks like for you. For some of us, you might look around at this country and that yummy, beautiful taste of the fruit of my party is superior. Let me wave that flag. Let me stand on that mountain. Let me get on Facebook and tell everybody why I'm right and they're wrong and they need to know it. Because it looks so good. It feels so good to be mad. It feels right. Maybe that's one. Maybe there's a other tree that you could choose that instead says, I'm going to build up and not tear down. Because that's, that's ultimately what we're talking about here, right? Building of a, of a church that represents the image of Jesus. We're tearing down people. Being a person that his words are seasoned with salt, fragrant aroma to the world around them, that doesn't consider other people's or hold records of their wrongs, that considers other people's more significant than themselves. Or maybe it's an addiction you can't seem to shake because those branches, they just look so good. And I feel lousy and God doesn't want me to feel lousy. He wants me to feel good. So I think I'm gonna take that bite. Or maybe it's in the daily test we all face every single day to be the type of people, the co-creators, co-rulers on this earth that God intends us to be. And I think it's a question for us all. But remember this, please remember this. Whatever it may be, whenever it comes, remember we have a loving Father who meets you right in the middle with compassion and wants to give you guidance for the best life to enjoy the gift he's given you, whatever it is, each and every day, so we can bring his kingdom to earth in the right here and right now. So maybe for you in expressions, it's going to the cross to be reminded of the sacrifice, the ultimate test he passed for us. Maybe it's meeting him at his table where we're always welcomed with mercy and help in a time of need. Maybe it's with prayer with some of our elders in the back because these things are hard. Sometimes they're difficult, sometimes they're not, but sometimes often if we're honest, they're hard. We just need prayer to get through that. Whatever it is this morning, allow the Holy Spirit to begin to talk to you and to remember the love the Father has for you. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this day, for the wonder of your name that you passed every test we could not. Because of that, we have a high priest who we can come to in our time of need that understands everything we go through. Yet you did not let sin devour you. 
you did not grab the fruit. And I pray that we be the kind of people in this church that build up and tear down, that build up and not tear down. That we be the place that's a light for you. As co-creators, co-rulers on this planet in the way that you intend for us as we try to become more and more like Jesus. And thank you that that's the goal of every single trial we'll encounter to become more and more like your son, Jesus. But that you are right there in the middle of it. With compassion and grace and lifting of our heads. We praise your mighty name.